if the only thing standing in our way is there is is our own biases and blind spots, preferences, politics, and prejudices, then it means that you know, we have the potential to change the world. It also means that you know we're really good at getting in the way of ourselves. <laughs> Welcome to Here's to the Future, a podcast series by Stripe in which we invite artists and thinkers from the Stripe network to share their thoughts about our future. This time we meet with speculative architect and director Liam Young. Described by the BBC as the man designing our futures, his visionary films and speculative worlds are both extraordinary images of tomorrow and urgent examinations of the environmental questions facing us today. Hi Liam, welcome to Stripe's podcast, Here's to the Future. Um, we are recording this while you are in LA late at night, right? And I'm um, in the Netherlands. How is everything going for you? Uh, things are fantastic. Uh, you're, we're calling into my studio here in downtown Los Angeles. Um, behind me is a giant movie miniature model of Planet City, which is one of my most recent film projects. And... Uh, it's the night before I send it to the London Science Museum. So you, you catch me in the middle of an all-nighter. Yeah, and I can tell uh, the listeners who unfortunately cannot see this model <laughs> yet, but uh, it looks really amazing. It's really big. Yeah, it's bigger than I am. Um, <laughs> uh, not necessarily the wisest thing to do when um, uh, you're making it all on your own against the deadline. But yeah, it's a substantial thing. Hopefully it's going to make it to London in one piece. Yeah, I hope so too. So in October uh, 2022, you will visit Stipe in Eindhoven for the launch of uh, choreographic camouflage during Dutch Design Week. And uh, yeah, you started uh, working on this concept already in 2021 when you won the Act Award, the Award for Creative uh, Technology with this work. But before we dive um, into this work, can you introduce yourselves, uh, yourself a bit more to our listeners? What does a speculative artist architect too. Sure. So my name is Liam Young and I'm trained as an architect originally, but now I essentially operate as a filmmaker. Uh, and, and really, I made that transition because for me, architecture is, is really just the art of telling stories with and through space. Um, so I feel still think I'm to a certain extent operating as an architect, but I don't design buildings. Rather, I tell stories about the global, urban and architectural implications of new technologies. So we're really interested in this idea that fiction is this extraordinary shared language. It's, it's how our culture shares and disseminates ideas. So we use the mediums of popular culture. We use film, animation, music videos, and so on. Um, like vessels, um, and we kind of install within them Trojan horses, critical ideas about who we are and who we might want to be, what our futures are becoming, and we try and disseminate those stories to as many people as possible. Yeah. Um, and I guess you know I, the, the native language of, of my discipline, architecture, is is typically one of plans and sections and diagrams, and and these are very coded languages. Um, they're very privileged languages that that often you might have to train for six or seven years to to learn how to read and decipher. But 
ever since we can sit up, we're put in front of the TV, we fall asleep into the pages of a novel, or you spend our Friday nights in front of the flicker of a movie screen. We're all literate in stories. And it seems important that, you know, if we're, if we value the ideas we work with as designers, finding mediums through which to share those ideas with the broader audiences as possible is, is, really our responsibility so mm -hmm. that's now what we do we we yeah. make stories about who we, who we are and who we want to be um, yeah. yeah and so you use the uh techniques that an architect uses as uh, as well to tell those stories i mean you're sitting in front of a really giant model of a city like planet city i've seen the work i know the work it's for those who don't it's I see a, a maquette of a city that goes like um, like up in the air, like all, it's mm -hmm. like skyscrapers, but then cons they consist of all kinds of little houses and buildings. Um, maybe you can tell a, a little bit more about Planet City before we start talking about uh, choreographic camouflage. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the model behind me is, is what we call a movie miniature model. So the history of science fiction cities in film is really a history of model making. You know, the cities from Blade Runner or, um, you know, iconic films like Metropolis. Like every time you in the history of film that you saw this imaginary city, you were seeing a model crafted by extraordinarily talented model makers. And it was then kind of shot and lit and, and you know, in a room filled with smoke and atmosphere to 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 make it feel like the future, um, feel like a, a real city that, that that people could inhabit. Um, and to a certain extent, with the advent of digital visual effects, those traditional techniques of model making have been lost. And what I wanted to do, this is a model for the London Science Museum blockbuster science fiction exhibition, which opens on October 6th. Uh, I wanted to revive those practices of, of old school movie miniature models. Um, so although it's a, it, it's, a, it's a model and architects, you know, talk and, and work through models sometimes, this is really a model um, pulled off a film set. Um, yeah. of this city. The, the project itself, Planet City, is, uh, I guess the headline of the work is that it's the visualization and design of a single city for 10 billion people, the entire population of the earth. Um, 10 billion is the projected global population of the world in 2050. And what we've been doing is, is working with the theories of a seminal biologist called Edward O. Wilson, who has a proposal for a new world that he calls half earth, which is a plan to stave off mass extinction by devoting half the surface of the earth completely to nature, thereby um, uh, constricting human development to the other 50% that would remain. And a lot of people generally because he, he you know, he comes from the field of biology, spend time thinking about, you know, if we, if we did leave behind 50% of the earth, how would you scaffold the, the recovery of the natural ecosystems that, that, that might fill it? But as an architect, I'm like, well, goodness, uh, mm -hmm. how, how would you retreat from really a, a, a planetary scaled city that we currently all occupy 
into 50% of the planet that would represent the, the largest construction project in all of our human <laughs> history. Um, because in many ways we have already terraformed the entirety of the earth from the scale of the cell to the tectonic plate to, to shrink to 50% of the planet is, is enormous as a task. Um, and that's really where the speculation of Planet City began. But as we, as we started working, we realized that if we just took the density of, of even the current densest city that exists, Manila, you could actually house 10 billion people in a city about the size of Texas. Um, so it's not 50% of the planet, but rather in its most extreme form, yeah. you could put 10 billion people in about 0.02% of the planet. And that's the thought experiment. That's the provocation of Planet City is, is you know, creating a film and, and visualizing and designing with a whole team of technologists, politicians, economists, scientists, science fiction authors designing this, this real working model of a hyperdense metropolis that, yeah. that, that operates at this kind of scale. Yeah. And then, so this is really, here I see the link with uh, architecture quite clear, but mm -hmm. um, choreographic camouflage is a dance performance and a music video that you directed mm -hmm. and which you, uh, with which you won the Act Award in uh, 21. Mm -hmm. um, so you teamed up with uh, choreographer uh, Jacob Jonas to create a new vocabulary of movements that has been designed to disguise the proportions of the body from human body detection algorithms uh, that are used by city surveillance networks. And in a film, we see the dancers performing these movements that distort the body's proportions, the symmetry, the shape, to make them invisible to these body detection uh, softwares. So yeah, again, we are, uh, this is a podcast, so we don't see the film uh, at this moment when the listeners are hearing you. Uh, can you describe a bit more in detail what we will see? when we watch the film? Yeah, so the, the film itself is a series of dancers performing this new vocabulary of movements uh, atop a series of rooftops in downtown Los Angeles. And uh, over the top of their bodies, what you see is a very fine layer of white lines that, that at certain points become almost the, the skeletal frame of a, of a human figure. Imagine like a stick figure almost. Um, and these, the, you know, the human body and this, and this graphic representation of the body are overlaid on top of each other. And at certain points they line up and coincide and at other points they, they're distorted. And then you see the body start to blur and shift and glitch. And what's happening is that um, we've developed software that basically translates the way that a body detection algorithm is in real time scanning and trying to read the body. Um, and what, what, what these algorithms do is that they, they search surveillance film data um, looking for proportions of what we might, you know, quote unquote, describe as the normal body. Mm. Of course, there is no normal body. And part of the film is, is, is talking about the embedded biases in these algorithms. But what it's doing is searching for, you know, two arms, two legs, the proportion of a torso to a neck and, and so on. It's, it's trying to read an image data looking for bodies. Um, 
these algorithms are written uh, basically because our gait, the way that we carry ourselves, the way that we walk is just as unique to us as our face or our fingerprint. And now as we're wearing more and more masks and particularly in the context of protests like we saw in Hong Kong and so on, when, when, when masks become critical um, clothing in the context of tear gas and, and other um, uh, weapons being used by the state, facial detection begins to fail and becomes quite a problematic. So a lot of authorities and governments are moving to a combination of facial detection and body detection. Um, so what we've done is, is kind of create software that, that visualizes the process that an algorithm is going through in searching an image for a body. Um, yeah. And what you're able to do in the film is, is see what a human body looks like in, in, these, in these dance movements, you know, see, seeing through the naked human eye what that body looks like. And then you're able to see the algorithm attempting to decipher and decode and identify that same body. And, you know, when that body is just standing there, obviously the algorithm, you know, creates a stick figure. It, 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 it creates a representation of the body. But, but when you start to distort that quote unquote normal body, when you create really asymmetrical movements, really rapid movements, when you kind of pin an arm behind a body or pin two legs together and break down that, that idea of two arms and two legs, when you take several bodies and entwine them together, then the algorithm starts to struggle. And all of a sudden, two bodies become red as one body. Um, uh, the, the, the figure starts to be distorted and, and essentially you can disappear. If you, don't, if you don't look like what the algorithm expects a body to look like, then you vanish to the eyes of the machine. So yeah. across the course of the film, you, 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 you know, you, we're shifting back and forth between recognizable bodies and these blurred and distorted bodies. And every time you see this blurred body, that signifies a point of failure in the algorithm. Yeah. So it kind of reminds me of those movies, you know, those um, movies where um, someone wants to steal a diamond and then has to escape through the la laser lights, you know, this uh, <laughs> tradition. <laughs> it kind of reminds me a bit of this Hollywood, uh, like the dance movements, how to es escape the technologies. Um, That's interesting. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it like that. I mean, in a way, it, 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 the way that we develop the movements is, is is kind of similar to those scenes where you see someone like in Oceans 12 or 13. Yeah, exactly. Where you, someone dancing through the laser beams. Because what we did is in order to develop those movements is that we um, created a real-time visualization. Um, so basically a version of the film that would be happening in real-time real with a live camera and we would do all these rehearsals in Jacob's studio with all of his dancers um, with, with a big projection on the wall of, of, of the visualization of the algorithm and the dancers and, and Jacob as a choreographer would just be trying stuff out, would be trying different movements, trying to figure out at what point did the algorithm uh, break. Um, yeah. So, so you had this real time sort of performance with the technology, which is akin to the 
the Hollywood version of the dance with the laser beams, I think. Why did you choose to team up with uh, Jacob Jonas? Uh, I mean, one of the quotes that, that, that always underpins our work that was introduced to through Tim Morn, who's a science fiction author that we often work with, is um, a, a quote from another science fiction author, William Gibson, you know, the, the iconic author that, that, that you know, wrote Neuromancer, you know, the, the, the novel where the word cyberspace first appears. Mm-hmm. Um, Gibson has this idea that the street finds its own uses for things. Um, and Gibson's talking about technology, right? Like, like that you don't really see the true potential or implications of a technology until various subcultures, you know, the street has co-opted it and misuse it for ways in which it wasn't necessarily intended. So in all of our work, we're, we're really interested in the subcultural implications of technologies. We're not interested in first adopters. We're not interested in the the use case scenarios that might be presented to us from various technology companies. Rather, we're interested in what happens when a bunch of teenagers get their hands on it. We're interested in what happens when um, uh, people try and break it and hack it and misuse it and, and co-opt it in ways that, that they want to play with it for. So things like rave culture, dance culture, um, you know, exploring how young people might exist and be young people and do the things that young people want to do in the context of a city of ubiquitous and complete and total surveillance is a big part of our work in recent years. So the idea of thinking through how a group of teenagers might want to, you know, party um, in the context of these algorithms is, 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 you know, embedded in the nature of what the project is. Um, you know, and previously, like, if you wanted to exist outside of the margins of the traditional city, you might go to a warehouse rave, you know, in an industrial part of town. Um, and you would go to one of these raves because you know, they'd be in these plots of the city where police didn't usually go because there wasn't much to protect at night. It was a bunch of old factories or abandoned buildings. There weren't a bunch of neighbors to complain about the noise and you could dance, do drugs, have sex, listen to music and, and um, be young. They were spaces of exception, but in the context of emerging technologies of smart cities, ubiquitous surveillance, um, uh, everything that we do is tracked and you know we have on us at our person giant sensor arrays constantly sending data to the cloud where do these spaces of exception exist and for us they exist in the spaces between the ways that machines see you know yeah. they exist in the in the gaps or the cracks in those technologies or they exist within the embedded biases of those technologies so putting those things together, we're interested in like, yeah, what, what happens when a group of dancers develop this new vocabulary of, of movements and dance moves that, that isn't based on a particular fashion or a, a musical artist of the moment or a particular trend, but it's based on the way that an algorithm works, yeah. the, the latest software update, you know, rather than a, 
a change in you know the fashion season um and yeah they're they're, they're dancing and moving in the way that people want to do to the beat of their own music um but they're moving in such a way that is entirely developed in response to how code is written yeah and so how was it to collaborate with uh, those dancers during the pandemic with all the lockdowns and the social distancing i can imagine that it was also quite hard yeah, that was, uh, I mean, this project, we're, we're <laughs> launching it in October 2022, but but it's been such a journey. It's been almost two years, and I think, you know, we were originally going to launch it at Stripe Festival um, almost two years ago, um, but it's, you know, probably the worst time <laughs> to, to be trying to do a live performance <laughs> project. Um, uh, and yeah, that was difficult. I think it was, it, it, was, it was difficult trying to find ways for people to see it. Making it was actually really great because dancers and, and Jacob's company, you know, were trying to invent new ways of working because the bread and butter of like being on stage and performing live in front of audiences wasn't possible for two years. Um, and I mean, there are various communities that have been hit hard by the pandemic, but but you know, theater performers and dancers are, are, are you know one of the one of the groups that that have been most radically affected by this by this 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 new world that we we've been living in. So to give them work to do and and a project to explore has been has been great. And across that time, Jacob is uh, and his his company, the Jacob Jonas Company, have morphed from essentially a live performance company into making series of films and and you know online dance workshops and really extraordinary um catalog of digital work um and this is you know, one part of that evolution so yeah it was really seamless working with them and um it was great to not have the same kind of scheduling issues that we probably would have had if we were doing it you know at the height of his performance schedule um so that's that's been great choreographic camouflage was originally intended as a reflection on the surveillance and tracking systems um, that were deployed against the protesters in hong kong right um so where the chinese authorities uh they developed this body tracking technology um can you can you explain a bit more about the dangers of this technology and why you did you choose to reflect on this yeah i mean we started the conversation talking about planet city and 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 there you talked about how it was very easy to see the architectural kind of, kind of echoes of 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 you know my my background in 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 that work i guess i was interested in, in exploring the choreographic camouflage project for similar kind of reasons, although the architecture is a bit more um, behind the scenes. Uh, I guess what's what what I'm interested in exploring is the idea that the systems that used to shape our experience of cities used to very much exist within the domains of the architect, right? This is the design of large-scale public spaces, you know, squares, piazzas, um, public streets. 
large-scale monumental infrastructure, roads, freeways, um, the power grid, water networks, and so on. Um, but to a large extent, the technologies and the systems that shape our contemporary urban experiences exist outside of this kind of built spectrum. Um, they're mobile technologies, they're infrastructures of code and software. Now the dominant public spaces are not public squares and piazzas, but they're social media platforms. And we see this radical shift in power that has happened where those spaces used to be you know, determined by the rules of law set in place by a government elected by a public. But now those same rules are put in place by a dude in sneakers and a hoodie. Mm -hmm. um, so we've, 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 we've morphed from being citizens of our cities to customers of our cities. Um, where the, the people managing those, those environments and spaces that are so fundamental to who we are today are accountable not to a public that might elect them, but rather to shareholders that, that are interested in returns on return and profit. So we're trying to talk about those dangers and trying to talk about this power shift because it hasn't been something that we've agreed to as a community. It's something that's kind of happened behind the scenes where slowly but surely governments have been outsourcing the things that they would normally do um, to proprietary algorithms. Um, and yeah, you know, the, the, the systems that make a city run um, the way the way that they need to run is that they're and the way that they operate is that they're fed from huge, they're fed huge data sets. Um, and that data sets comes from us, from how we move and, and, and tracking us and, and, and capturing us, going about our lives. Um, you know, so when you're, you're the, when an AI is, is, is employed to, to regulate the, the bus service in London to make sure that buses don't all come at once, but can come at regular intervals, they need to be tracking passenger numbers and how many people are at a bus stop at any one time. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's really complex and, and very detailed um, surveillance that, that, that feeds those systems. And at the same time, you know, it's, it's useful because a, a, you know, a bus comes when you want it. But at the same time, there isn't the same sort of rigors and accountability around these new systems of technology that shape our cities as there are around, you know, the traditional forms of public infrastructure like the power grid or access to fresh water. Um, so I guess that's the dangers that we want to be talking about with our work is, is you know, to, to talk about the way that, that these systems of, of outsourced governance have crept into our lives without us really realizing it. And yeah. to try and talk about the, the contradictions and biases embedded in these systems and to talk about how we need to all be more active participants in the evolution of these systems as opposed to passive consumers standing in line waiting for the next iPhone to be released. 
Um, and I guess that's the, you know, the hopefully one of the takeaways of the project. And really what we're going to be talking about is the way that that something like a body detection algorithm should be understood as a form of public utility and public infrastructure. Um, we need to start having conversations about what it means to explore ideas of, of public code. And that's a really radical shift from the way that we do things now, you know, yeah. where, where so much of tech, um, big tech is, is predicated on venture capitalists and angel investors that are basically putting money into a system that gets patented that they can then monetize. And, you know, it, it represents a radical shift. What needs to happen is that, you know, a, the hottest computer science graduate out of MIT should be going to work for the, the Eindhoven Municipal Council <laughs> as opposed to going to work for Google, Apple, Amazon, or Facebook. Um, you know, that, that, that's a long way from, from, from that have taking place, but, but really that, that shift in, in the you know, technology you know, being born in the private sector to being part of, you know, public utility and urban infrastructure is, is something that needs to happen because as we've seen across the pandemic, these technologies that we used to think of as being luxuries or things we could opt into if we chose to um, are, are really essential services. Um, we need to treat them as such. Yeah, and it also when thinking about um, you know um, the the laser beams in um, bank robbery Hollywood movies versus um, surveillance technology on the streets, you also don't see it. I mean, we're not aware all the time that we're being tracked. Mm -hmm. um, but I guess that in uh, a lot of cities, especially in the West, I think we're constantly being followed, right? Yeah, I mean that's that's how smart city technologies work. Is they they need to be fed with constant streams of of, of really complex data. Yeah, um, and yeah, we don't realize it, but we're we're throwing massive massive amounts of data about ourselves and what we're doing up into the cloud constantly. Whether it's you know how we move and where we go, whether it's you know, what we search and what we're looking at, like everything is being captured and there are very few systems of accountability around how that data is being used. Because again, it's, 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 it's not owned by us. It's, it's being monetized by people that we don't even know or will never meet. Um, yeah. And how do you think that the pandemic has changed uh, the status of surveillance? Um, I'm not sure that it, uh, I, I don't know, I don't know if it has. Um, it's, it's perhaps, if anything, made some of these systems more visible. Um, I mean, it's certainly made forms of algorithmic employment more visible. You know, like when we start to see the way that... Um, the, the shift that's happened with gig, gig economy workers like Uber Eats drivers and 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 Lyft and Uber uh, taxi drivers and so on, like you know we see the way that that they've essentially become essential workers, right? Like like when everyone's in lockdown, um, getting your groceries delivered or getting food delivered to your door, 
became um, uh, critical and and people that should have been at home in lockdown were but you know were forced to get on the road and and go driving in order to to make that work so um you know we we we, we saw um this whole community of people that are essentially employed by an algorithm um uh become really prominent in our lives and our and our world um you know that was one of the extraordinary things that come out of the pandemic was that realization of just how um, fundamental these this 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 kind of gig economy workforce has become the zero contract hour worker has become um you know you also saw the way that like i mean here in los angeles uh the pandemic broke uber in many ways right like it became the, the the prices of an Uber ride shot through the roof. That you're you're in continual surge pricing because no one wanted to drive anymore. Um, the US had a series of um, uh, uh, kind of uh, COVID um, benefit schemes and and payment plans, and essentially you could earn a comparable amount sitting at home watching Netflix as you were driving an Uber car. So they really struggled for drivers. Um, uh, and again, it's just, it's just a process that revealed the, 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 the systems of outsourced kind of algorithmic governance that, that currently exists in our world. And, I, and I'm moving to a certain extent, a, a far way away from surveillance as at its core, but um, all of these things are nested together, right? Like, you know, you know, all of our data about how we eat, what we want to eat, where we move, where we're going, are all feeding the algorithms from companies like Lyft and for companies like Lyft and Uber. Um, they rely on those kind of surveillance networks and tracking networks in order to, to operate in the most efficient form in their most, um, uh, productive and profitable form. Um, uh, and I think, yeah, across the pandemic, we, we, we saw the way that those systems became revealed in a new light. Yeah. And so, um, I mean, there can also, what you already said, there can be some uh, benefits of surveillance, you know, uh, having buses not uh, driving at uh, the right times or, you know, <laughs> keeping people at a distance, making sure there's some crowd, crowd control so it doesn't become too busy. I mean, I can see that there would be some benefits, but also some dangers. But still, there's a lot of discussion already for years going on uh, about privacy and to which extent um, this uh, can affect our personal lives. And some people still say that they don't really care because they have nothing to hide, while others are trying to stay away from the technologies that track and record um, to stay off the radar. So what would you, uh, what's your view on this? Yeah, I mean, I guess at the moment our projects are, are, uh, are really looking through the eyes of the hackers, I suppose, that that are that are misusing and and breaking these systems. But really, what we're trying to do at the moment is not to say that like you know these are the heroes of our emerging new age, but but instead we just feel that these are the types of stories that we need to be talking about now, right? Like 
basically the work that we do is the creation of counter narratives. You know, I'm a storyteller, I make fictions and we make those fictions, we make the, the fictions that other people aren't making or, or talking about. So at the moment in the context of all of these technologies, the dominant media narrative is, uh, is a techno-solutionist one, right? Like, hey, we've, we've developed this new system, we've developed this new technology, this new algorithm, this new device, whatever it is, and it's gonna make your life better. It's gonna connect you better to your loved ones. It's gonna help you to get to work faster. It's gonna help you to be more productive and more efficient. It's gonna give you a better orgasm. It's gonna make you happier. Um, it's gonna uh, you know, allow you to find the things that you wanna find or watch faster or more efficiently. Um, you know, it's, it's a very one-sided, view of, of, of a particular technology, because essentially the dominant narratives around it are generated from the people that have a vested interest in, in bringing it into the world because they stand to make a ton of money. Um, so what we try and do with our work is then say, well, what are the narratives, what are the fictions, what are the stories that we're not talking about with these systems? And that becomes about the unintended consequences, how they could be misused um, the biases and contradictions in these systems, how the idea that no technology is a solution to anything. Um, technology is just an extension of ourselves. And with that, they, technology exaggerates, extends the embedded contradictions, biases, prejudices, hopes, dreams, and desires of all of us. Um, and in that way, any technology is, is kind of equal parts fear and wonder because in the end, so are we. And if the mainstream story wonder, then sometimes the stories that we need to tell are of fear to say, well, hold on. If we do this, if, if we implement this system, which yes, is gonna make this thing more efficient, this is what we might be giving up to do it. And this is what we might be forced to come to become if we were to bring this into the world. Let's have that conversation. Because um, really, for the most part, technology doesn't make it into our world at the point where it's the most productive or valuable or meaningful, but rather at the point at which it can be monetized. And those two things are the same. So how we can, you know, just in a very small way, like, like, you know, um, change the needle and hopefully get people talking about in a more critical way, these technologies is, is important. So yeah, the narratives that we've been exploring of one of kind of underground subcultures and, and how people might break these systems and how they might, you know, dwell and, and inhabit the, the biases within them and the, the gaps in within them, how they might seek out the spaces where the machines can't see and how they might occupy them. Really is a means to say that, hey, these, these things are not perfect. Um, they're filled with gaps and cracks and um, this is what it might look like to inhabit them. Yeah. The history of camouflage is always related to the to the technologies of how we see, right? 
And as those technologies of how we see changes, so does the nature of camouflage. Um, I mean, you, I think you can put camouflage choreography in the history of camouflage technologies all the way beginning with, you know, the inflatable tanks and, um, you know, scenic, scenographic painting of landscape that was used in World War I to hide munitions warehouses, right? There, the dominant form of surveillance was taking a camera and putting it on a balloon and flying it over enemy lines. So what you would be doing is trying to create um, tactics for disappearance that, that um, were designed to work uh, to the lens of a, of a, of a high-altitude camera. And then, you know, you had the emergence of, um, you know, when, when, when the battleground shifted, um, you had the emergence of, you know, camouflage textiles. Um, when people, you know, wanted to disappear to the eyes of, a, of, an, of another enemy soldier within the jungle, you had these destructive pattern materials that, that would um, blend the body into the landscape. Um, when the dominant mode of seeing was through the periscope of a submarine, then you had dazzle ship camouflage patterns, which essentially wasn't trying to make a ship disappear on the horizon, but was trying to confuse the direction of travel that that ship was going on so that someone in a submarine who's need, who needs to plot the course of the ship in order to you know, make its trajectory meet with the trajectory of their a torpedo wouldn't be able to judge movement and distance. Um, and then you had the evolution of radar and all of a sudden we have the, you know, the birth of radar camouflage and stealth technologies. And in the same way, you have, you know, projects like Adam Harvey, um, who, oh goodness, when was that? In the early noughties, maybe, <laughs> yeah, like 2010, was, was doing like, you know, um, CV Dazzle, uh, uh, CV Dazzle and, and developing makeup techniques that would disguise the the proportions and patterns of the face to facial detection algorithms. Um, and now here in 2022, we have body detection algorithms, gate detection algorithms, and we have this new vocabulary of movement. And, and that arms race is gonna keep on continuing. And again, like, you know, with every software update comes this, this shift. And I think what's interesting about that is if, you know, our fashion and our dance cultures are based around these kind of technologies, then all of a sudden these fashion cycles are now tied to Moore's law or the rate of software updates rather than, you know, trends, fads, change in natural season and so on that normally fashion cycles are rooted to. Yeah, so when it, will it ever stop? Uh, I mean, should we go dancing on the streets or, you know... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and people essentially do, right? Like, like all of the tactics that we see in in protests around the world are, 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 are forms of, um, you know, civil protest and civil civic camouflage, right? Um, where you know, Antifa wraps themselves in a hoodie and a black balaclava, you know, is a way of staying invisible to the eyes of 
you know, the world's media cameras that are documenting those protests or police drones that are in the air monitoring the movement of protesters um, in a, in a kettling situation. Like, you know, we're out in the streets protesting and acting against these systems on a daily basis uh, all around the world. And, and, you know, um, choreographic camouflage is, is, um, I guess a celebration of of those same processes as well, um, or at least it's 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 trying to acknowledge that those processes exist and are and are critical today. Yeah. So, in um, is it? Do you think it's up to us, like the civilians, to disguise themselves for surveillance, or what would could be the role of a government? Um, yeah. I mean, ultimately. Uh, a project like this is really a provocation you know it's not like oh we've cracked it this is how you can this is how you're now going to be a citizen in your city again is is by learning these movements and and disappearing whenever you want to um rather it's a it's trying to institute a discussion or or shift the needle a little bit around the in the in the discourse of of these systems like you know, throwing accountability and um, responsibility on individuals to to push back against these these extraordinary systems of of governance and 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 uh, systems of you know that that are iconic of a power shift that's happening in our cities is is completely the wrong way of of thinking about it, right? And it's akin to the way that. Um, the fossil fuel industry has tried to make us feel individually accountable for global climate change and like trying to guilt trip us about the cars we drive or the, um, you know, whether we're vegan or vegetarian or we eat meat, whether we recycle or not, how often we fly and, uh, and whereas really we should be talking about the, the massive planetary scale systems of, of, of carbon production um uh that 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 operated you know at industrial scales in the same way like yeah a lot of these projects read in the wrong way are trying to talk about how you know all will be okay as long as you learn how to apply this makeup in the right way and and really the point of these projects is just to show how these systems work because as you've described these systems are entirely impenetrable and invisible um, as a means to 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 ask and to force the larger forms of government that that implement them to both be more mindful, more accountable, and to roll out these systems in forms that are more equitable and responsible and transparent. Yeah, well, thank you. So our mission, the mission of Stripe, is to explore uh, future scenarios with a critical, optimistic um, attitudes. Mm-hmm. So how do you feel about the future? Um, uh, yeah, like I said, equal parts fear and wonder. <laughs> um, uh, deep down, I'm a techno-optimist, I suppose. But, but I, I, I guess... You know, work like Planet City that we began to talk about, which is probably my, you know, um, along with choreographic camouflage, is my most is my most recent work. Um, 
one of the key takeaways is the idea that something like climate change is no longer a technological problem, right? It's now a cultural problem um, because the technologies required to dig us out of the holes that we've created for ourselves are actually already here. And in most cases, they've been here for 10 or 15 years. Um, they're just being kept down by various political lobbies or a lack of cultural investment. What it means is that we could change things tomorrow if we decided to, and, and there's real hope in that. Um, we're not sitting around waiting for a tech billionaire to, to solve fusion reactions, of, of fusion energy. You know, we're not, we're not sitting around waiting for someone to, you know, invent the Hyperloop or create a spaceship that's going to deliver us to our new lives on Mars. Um, there's been a planetary network of scientists optimizing solar panels and wind energy and exploring systems of pumped hydro storage that, that, that counter the critique of renewables as reliant on expensive and resource intensive lithium battery networks. You know, I could go on um, and Planet City, all we've really done is, is take technologies that are already here and just roll them out at scales that are productive and meaningful. If the only thing standing in our way is there is is our own biases and blind spots, preferences, politics, and prejudices, then it means that you know we have the potential to change the world. It also means that you know we're really good at getting in the way of ourselves. <laughs> um, so you know the same networks that can bring us together at communities um, large enough to to take on these, these, this scale of issue can also, the same networks can also be used to spread misinformation about a vaccine or to elect an idiot, an idiot to the US presidency or to further divide us. So, you know, any technology is, is, is just an extension of who we are. So, the, the, the problems to solve are really the same problems we've already encountered. Like, you know, how can we make the right kind of choices? <laughs> yeah, and technology always, uh, it's, with every new technology, the same questions arise again and again and again. So um, thank you, um, Liam, for this, uh, for this time. Thank you. Um, it's really late at night and you have some work to do, uh, you told me. So I look forward to um, finally see you in, uh, in Eindhoven during uh, Dutch Design Week for choreographic camouflage. We will launch it there. And um, yeah, talk to you soon. Yeah, thanks for your time. Thanks so much. It's great, great to, to talk. You. Thanks for all the questions and conversation. I look forward to showing, showing everyone the project. You listen to Here's to the Future, a podcast by Stripe, an Eindhoven-based organization that wants to set up an open dialogue with the public, artists, designers, media makers and thinkers about the relationship between people, experimental technology, society and the future.